0: Welcome to another episode of The Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. So let's just start out with, a lot of people don't know your brand, um, if they're like, heavy into the consumer side So right. As you know, one of the things I get a kick out of this, what can B2B companies learn from consumer brands? And every time I go into Granger, I flip that around and go, wow, there are some consumer companies that can learn a lot from this B2B brand who apparently learned it from a consumer brand at one point. So can you just talk about that and talk about, do you see B2B and consumer stuff in the digital age converging, You know, what's, what, what's your thought about uh, where we're
1: going? Now? Yeah, so 15 seconds on the company. is uh, the largest distributor of industrial supplies in the world. Uh, about 10 billion in sales, um, 24,000 employees in 25 countries around the world. This is really sexy stuff. Hammers, toilet papers, mops, buckets, ladders. We think it's sexy anyway. It's definitely important to the economy. Uh, Company started in Chicago in 1927. One store uh, selling motors downtown Chicago and is growing to the biggest player in the world in that space. So, as you think about those products, not necessarily a brand that's well known on the Granger side outside of the B2B space. But what's really important is our customers clearly know us well, being the biggest player in that market. And those customers uh, interact with us online 35 40% of the time. We're the 13th largest online retailer in North America, uh, B2B or B2C. And so the experience that customers expect to have in that interaction is very similar to their B2C experience. And so although it's happening in an industrial environment, it might be happening on the plant floor or the basement of a hospital or on a military base, those people go home and have B2C experiences uh, from an e-com perspective. And so they expect that exact same level of transaction simplicity in their interactions with Granger.
0: So, what you're saying is we're all people. <laughs>
1: Got it. Um, we, we, we may steal that for the promotional material. <laughs> uh, and
0: every time I cut your office, I'm impressed with your people. So, can the Granger folks just raise their hand so the people next to you know who's from Granger here? Court always travels with an entourage. I'm
1: they're all huddled together. Hold on, hold on. Who's your entourage here? Let's get some, let's compare them. <laughs> yeah. I got
0: some from Kellogg. It's about it. my son. Left. So So uh, uh, we talk a lot about at the Kellogg School about innovation. It's always about the product, the customer, the market, the blah 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 blah, it's cool stuff. But what about it? just the cost side? You guys have done some interesting things that Uh, Exelon was here last time for the last series so we talked about you know innovating on the inside is sometimes not that sexy
1: I need to you actually get that done. I to, um... so, so, I think in a, in, a, in a business like ours, we're $10 billion, $200 at a time, very high transaction intensive business. It's a pennies business. We don't make anything, uh, we're purely a distributor. And so, um, you know, we, ha- we hosted Exelon at our uh, distribution center in Manuka a few months ago. That's the largest goods to person uh, implementation in the world, which means instead of walking around picking product, uh, basically, there's a robotic system picking the product, bringing it to the people that are putting it away. You know that increased large capital investment, but increased our efficiency in the building by about 13x uh, what it was before the implementation of that system. We're on site managing inventory at about 60,000 customers around North America. So all of the technology that we apply in terms of route optimization, uh, how often to replenish those customers, what products they should have in stock, uh, there's a huge amount of innovation that happens around uh, happens around doing that. So one of the things that we're piloting right now is the use of sensors, the use of location services to help us manage the time uh, without people having to check in or do anything on their own, but manage the time per stop that we have as we're doing that inventory management on the customer side. So. So no direct customer benefit, but a huge cost savings opportunity for us. Most people have
0: no idea in this room where the hell Manuka, Illinois, is, but I had the painful pleasure of going there. And I'm driving around. It's worth the trip. I'm driving around, lost. I asked the guy, "Where's the Granger Building?" He's like, "Yes, this is all Granger. This is." Uh, so Amazon gets a lot of credit for that, but they clearly have uh, broken the mold. There, we we have a delegation coming in from Singapore to talk about e-commerce. We're going to have a summit down here in a couple of weeks. And they specifically wanted to see Granger. You guys know how to move a lot of stuff. I've never seen, outside of Amazon, a, a more automated uh, warehouse. I didn't know it was one of the largest out there, though. So let's switch. Uh, since we're still innovation, just how do you guys approach kind of commercializing innovation? It's nice to come up with all these cool ideas, you know, but half of them never see the light of day, and most of them are never really used by customers. So how, do you, how are you driving that? I know you've changed a lot of things since you've been uh, Granger.
1: Yeah. So we, we we've changed the approach. We historically had, you know, really close in. Um, sort of very iterative innovations that would happen in the business units, and then we would have some wild and crazy stuff that was so far out we really struggled to get it commercialized. And so what we've really done over the course of the last 8 to 12 months is think about a small number of franchises, having franchise owners in each of those areas, um, having very clear expectations in terms of the fact that they need to work with our central innovation team on both closer in innovation, but also more transformational work. And so having a central group that has time and flexibility to work on things, but in very specific areas, combined with business unit PL owners that have an expectation that they have to find a way to commercialize those innovations as part of their strategy, as part of their compensation, as part of their business planning process, bringing those things together, we've actually just six, eight, 10 months into that, have been able to bring a couple of really neat, uh, unique things to the market that I don't think would have come otherwise. Good. We'll get to a couple of those in a minute. By the way, is this how your
0: Monday morning meetings go? Because I'm already nervous. I don't, I don't know if I can work for you. Does all that have to be done by noon, you guys? Is that the uh, Okay. That's cool. So, um, you know, I make fun of big companies. I call them big, fat, and slow. And uh, Chicago has a lot of that kind of, you know, um, uh, talent that is kind of stuck in this void of they don't have a lot of digital DNA. They've kind of grown up in a more of an analog society, society if you will. How have you increased the digital DNA at Green
1: So one of the benefits we have is, is a tradition on the digital side. We had our first transactional website in 1995. Uh, at that time, there weren't a lot of people that were working in that space. 85 before we
0: sipping out CDs. It, it
1: was uh, yeah, it was not a, it was not the same technology we're using today. Um, so, but we were we've always tried to be ahead on the technology side. So that being said, we had a good base to work from, but lots more work to be done. So three four years ago, uh, we brought in new leadership on that team. Uh, some really strong players, Paul Miller, who heads up that group, uh, and then really strong players, Jeff Robertson on the product management side, Parvez Patel, who's here uh, with Jeff, who runs the the e-marketing. In the e-merchandising side, Jason Browniewell, we think may have a relationship to you. It's like your uh, spinning image uh, a couple of years, a couple of years earlier, and uh, who runs the UX side. So, brought in world-class talent. Of course, more world-class talent follows as you bring those people in. Uh, and then, I think most importantly, we have some incredibly. Thorny, complex, interesting problems to work on. They're, this is a really important part of our business on the innovation, the digital side. So it's well funded. There's really interesting work to be done, and as we bring that great talent in, continually challenging them and shifting the, the projects and the problems that they're working on. I was over at uh, uh,
0: Chase, JP uh, uh, Morgan Chase, day. So they, they've set aside about two hundred million dollars to help companies around the country increase this this, this digital DNA issue we have. Because so we, you know, companies like Okta are we are. Pretty, it's easy for us to attract talent for a lot of the big companies that the young kids don't want to go there. You guys have broken that mold, which is impressive. Um, so um, you've got the downtown group, two floors uh, over in the train station. and I walked in there and I kind of thought I was in LA or Silicon Valley and, uh, until I saw you, of course, with a suit um But then you have this old stodgy company in Lake Forest with a cool building, but it's, you know, it's, it's Granger. I, mean, I used to work at Annexter, same kind of uh, mentality. Uh, how do you keep that from being an us and them? Or, um, you know, it's literally like two cultures. It felt like it to me.
1: So we're really focused on trying to have the best of both worlds coming together uh, for, for those two groups. And so one of the things we've done is with the downtown office space, we've really made that space that anybody in the company can use. So we have product management teams there, we have finance teams there, we have different groups that will work from there. A lot of the teams will work two or three days in each office, so you have lots of sharing back and forth, and then some of the innovations that we had on a highly collaborative and, and very flexible workspace downtown, we've actually now applied those things back into the Lake Forest office, so it's starting to look functionally more and more like the downtown office space does, uh, which then makes it also more hospitable for some of those folks to split their time in both yeah, places. Yeah, but it doesn't look like this, it's not quite cool. You can't be as cool as this. And this is like- we, we do have a very cool fountain
0: though. Yes, you do. Your, your customers walk in and you go, what the hell are your margins? I'm looking for a distributor. It is a nice fountain. Can I work in your office? It is a pretty cool place. It's, it's right in the train station. We'd be happy to rent you a space. John Octa's expanding. We might as well, you know, let's get close to our customers. Um, what else have you done? I mean, come on, give us the dirt. How, how else have you transformed the culture? It's no secret that you have.
1: So I think that, you know, the the business is really forcing that transformation. One of the things that happens as the business becomes more and more digital today, 35, 40% of the transactions uh, happen from a digital environment. Most of our customers deal with us in a multi-channel way today. That really forces the businesses to come together on a cross-functional basis. And so that changes how we think about product management, the application of technology, and actually forces the groups together because something that we'll do in the in our iPhone app, as an example, has to be translated into how we execute that in the stores. And so that forces those groups to really, to really come together. And then I think the second thing is as we've had more and more data that spins out of these e-commerce transactions, being more analytical, more data-driven in all the decisions that we make, not just from an e-marketing perspective or an e-merchandising perspective, but in terms of how we think about all the investments and all the planning in the business. Um, so we're taking some of those things that have worked really well on the digital side and applying them back in the, in the traditional business. I'm already
0: exhausted. Wow. And that's for Forward Tuesday. Um, so let us we talk about competition? Absolutely. Um, you guys, you sell everything from cameras to really anything in the company. So, really, you have competition everywhere. I can go to Home Depot, I can go to Uline catalogs. Your catalog is this big, but it has 1.1 million products in it. Um, how do you define competition? And more specifically, is this sort of the digital crowd here cares about UX? How have you guys used kind of that user experience to better compete with this pl- plucker of uh, competitors in you know, physical
1: and digital? Yeah, so a couple things, and... and uh we can maybe spend some more time on this a little bit later because um, I don't want to drag out the answer too long. But you know, <laughs> yeah, I know you're going to cut me off after two bullet points anyway. Um, so uh, you know, a couple of things that are really important. One is, as you think about this this million skew environment and putting that into an iPhone app or having that experience be online, the product information becomes incredibly important. In many ways, the information around the product is more important than the product itself because if you can't find it. Uh, then it's of no value the fact that we have it in stock. So huge investments as it relates to the product information infrastructure and the quality of the data. So that might be enriched content, it might be videos, technical specs, all of those things that help you search better. The second thing is the actuality of the search is incredibly important. So if I'm searching for an item that I already have a part number for versus I'm running a hotel and the air conditioning unit is down and I don't know what the thing is, those search environments are incredibly different. And so, trying to have a different experience for different search occasions in that platform is absolutely critical. So, those are a couple of things that we spend a lot of time on. And then, we do a lot of in the field, ethnographic UX work that crosses very different industries, very different purchasing occasions, and very different types of buyers. You know, we have personas that we talk about, one being Al, which is someone turning a wrench that might be in the, in the maintenance side of this building, in the basement of the hospital, on the military base, on the manufacturing plant floor. And Betty, who is in the procurement department, is really focused on transactional cost reduction, unit price, they have very, very different needs. And so really trying to think about how do you match those different occasions from a UX perspective, depending on, on what, they're trying to, uh, what they're trying to accomplish. I'm curious to hear from your guys what other
0: personas you have. You must have a plumber guy with you know, the plumber's butt. <laughs> I mean, you've got a, just a wide spectrum, but the competition just floors me. I mean, everyone is out there, and, and uh, we had the same conversation with Target a couple weeks ago. It's like everyone is their competitors. So,
1: so something that's important though, and, and we serve so many different industries. I mean, we, we, you know, we have more than two million customers in the US, and we really touch every different element of the economy. So what's important, though, is that we've segmented the business to have practices, not unlike a consulting firm would, to really understand that the people that call on healthcare only call on healthcare. The people that call on food manufacturing, that's all they do, they're incredibly well-trained, they really understand the needs of those different customers in those different occasions. And so I think the issue is, with many of the peripheral competitors, you, you just simply, if that's not your core business, you can't make those types of investments to really understand the customer needs at that finite level, and so those competitors tend to play more around the edges, but it's very difficult to penetrate the core business with that type of strategy. Yes, you go deep and heavy
0: on the user experience Uh We have uh, some friends from the United Airlines here tonight, and they've just come off a huge project, multi-year project, where they're literally following guys like us around the airport, only with their iPhone dragging the luggage, yelling at the kids really figure out what the experience should be and they're about to launch a whole new site around it. And I was just curious who the hell you guys follow around?
1: Yeah, so it really is, it does come down to Al and Betty and, and we do follow them and we follow them in very different uh, in very different places. So if you think about the contractor who's driving around in their van uh, trying to figure out what parts they need to fix an immediate problem uh, versus uh, the procurement professional who maybe uh, works in a health systems group and is trying to manage transactional volume across 10, 12, 15 different hospitals. Those needs are very different. We invest a lot of time sitting with those people, spending time with them, really understanding what's important to them. So we did some work with IDEO a couple of years ago on the branch experience, which tends to be a contractor, tends to be a smaller customer tends to be someone that's in a hurry and stripped out a lot of the product and a lot of the clutter in the branches because what we found is they wanna get their thing as quick as they possibly can and be back on the road. Now we also had people that would come in and bring equipment into the branch that had big thorny problems, couldn't figure out how to solve it, so we've now got a workbench, we've got a technical expert in there who can help you take a motor apart, figure out what you need, but those are very different occasions. The way that we came to reshaping that store network really was from just following people around and observing them as they were doing those different tasks. So,
0: yeah, I can take a loader apart, I just can't put it back together, unfortunately. So, uh, back to the catalog. 1.2 million SKUs, and your guys like to say it's like, you know, cataloging your phone, is that what they um, it's still It still seems uh, overwhelming to me, so how, how far along are you on that journey, I guess? How satisfied are you that you're, I know one of your tracks is, hey, I want to move most of this to e-commerce, and let's get out of this manual ordering business. You still have storefronts, coming.
1: Uh, around the world, about 600 uh, storefronts. It's about 10% of the total transactional volume. So
0: you end up with one big fat mobile app or verticals that are focused on different.
1: Where we have struggled a little bit more is on the internal side. And so as we were spinning up a lot of mobility work two, three years ago for Salesforce productivity, the productivity of the people that manage the inventory and put the product away from customers, every department started spinning up their own work in those areas. And so one of the things that we did, I talked earlier about merging all of the product management into a single stream to capture all of that. That's one of the things we've done from the internal, uh, the internal app side. As it relates to the search and select issue with customers, one of the things that we've done from a mobile perspective is really try and optimize the form factor of each different device. And so the way that we think about the search function in our iPad app versus our iPhone app versus an Android app is actually quite different trying to maximize the unique elements of each form factor. My view, and the team may feel a little differently about this, I actually think our search experience from a mobile perspective is better than our search experience on the the desktop, on the normalgranger.com website because you're forced in those form factors to making decisions about what you're gonna serve up. In many ways, you're actually serving up fewer options. Uh, we tend to get those options right, and, and in many ways, that's a more simplified uh, search experience. And so um, I think we've made great progress, but there's still a lot more work to do. Yeah, Mark and his
0: team from United said the same thing to me last week. They like, we got the, we got the, uh, the, uh, the small screen field from the form factor right, and we're taking that to the web. So it's, right. it's interesting for your company's it. Uh, differently, the um, I put a note out to the active of people to say what would you like me to ask court, and um, it, it's kind of technical, so I don't know, guys, if he's ready for this one, but Uh-oh. when you end up like, five years from now, and you end up with all these apps, all these work and all this stuff, what's your you know portfolio management strategy of keeping all this straight? Because some companies didn't have one, I and mean, you guys obviously will want. Or there
1: well I think a couple things one is the integrated product management approach across all the digital platforms centralized under under Jeff Robertson's team really helps with that helps bring that all together the second is that you know we've gotten a lot of expertise running a multi-channel business today so we have stores we have salespeople we have all of the different digital applications we have on-site inventory management and our largest customers actually use us across all of those different channels today and so we're having to manage all of that complexity of all those different channels today and then finally I think the fact that we have unique practices for each individual customer set, be it healthcare or military or food manufacturing or whatever the different environment is, that, that also allows us to think very clearly about what is important to that customer in that segment and how do you make sure that experience is relevant because it's very different in the healthcare environment versus on a military base, very different things are important there. Interesting. Um,
0: can we talk
1: about big data? Absolutely. As as you, you
0: know, I like to call big data small ideas, so that's kind of the phase we're in. So you guys are throwing off a lot of digital exhaust with all these apps and I think I have a venture analytics people really don't
1: know that well, but what are you gonna do with all this information? So, so a couple of things. One is we've really, over the last 12 months, been overhauling the customer information architecture. And so one of the things that we found is that we haven't had the base infrastructure uh, set up in a way that allows us to marry all of data in the data in the most effective environment. And so we've been making technology investments. Uh, we've been making talent investments on that side. We really have the infrastructure and the base foundation that allows us to get at that in the most aggressive way. The second is there's actually a lot of utility that can be gained from that for customers. And so one of the areas we are applying a right now is if you think about the search issue 1.2 million items trying to navigate to the right solution I mean there are literally 7 or 800 options for hammer on the website. I looked up safety boots today. I love that. It's great. I mean, it's because who doesn't need 800 hammers? I encourage, I encourage all of you to have them all. You know, we're applying data today. Um, what I see us doing, you know, two years, three years down the road is the predictive opportunity that we have based on what we sell customers and when you would be thinking about preventative maintenance on a motor or a fan or a pump. That's really the next level for us. We're not ready to do that yet, but we're making the investments that will get us there the next two or three years. And that's what I
0: want to talk about. Your, your secrets. So this is kind of like when Amazon finally let the drone cat out of the bag. This is your turn now to let something out of the bag. Please. Um, so let's talk about the Internet of Things and three D printing. By the way, we're printing your 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 party gift is a three D printed Granger logo back there. Excellent. I might have to wait a couple weeks for it. I'm sure. everybody's sure. um, you know, really all excited, and then I just go in there and stare at them. Like this is. I got speed up a little bit, but, uh, so hopefully we're doing kind of a light one for you. Um, so let's Internet of Things. Uh, I know some of the things we're twining around with, but um, nobody would think of vending machines
1: for hammers. Does that work? Yes, yeah, so vending machines, uh, we have about we have between five and ten thousand machines in the market. We install about five thousand machines a year. And when you think about, you know, talking, I was talking to the Redbox guys at a at a kin event recently and you know, as they think about vending, it's really about how do you have a great consumer experience to sell more stuff. We really think about for a customer, how do you limit the consumption of products? Because one of the biggest things that our customers face is the overuse or the overconsumption of products. And so really that's just another way of applying, sensing technology to how much inventory is being consumed, who is consuming it? Why are they consuming so much? How do you report on that? How do you replenish that? And so, whether that's in a, a vending cabinet, whether that's in a free issue inventory that might be in a place like a tool crib, uh, we think there's a great application of using this, uh, using sensing technology there to help customers. Wow. Um, so let's
0: take that a step further. So, excellent has been playing with you know some type of glass, not necessarily Google Glass. you have got a line in the field, and you don't have the right guy. Out. Someone else could be out there you because are seeing what are seeing. Right. Um, could that be a home and the business model where you move into, hey, not only do we, you know, our sensors, you know, triggered something, we know there's three parts you in your air conditioner, and here's the instructions on how to do it. Do you kind of move into more of a content company at that
1: point? Well, there's, there's a lot of those opportunities. And I talked earlier about, as we think in, about enhancing the search and the product information, just the availability of enhanced content, technical specifications, application information, those things are really important. This is a big opportunity. Um, back to the vending machines. Uh, so should you really stop hammers
0: in there? Where do you see it five years from now? Do you just read and print some stuff for me?
1: So, so 3D printing has the potential of having some unique application, especially on tail items for our customers. And so uh, the research that we've done around it, the customer discussions that we've had, is that for the things that are incredibly infrequently purchased, it may be an interesting part of the solution. But for the customer that uses, if I think about you know, in the heavy construction industry, where people are buying skids of hammers, um, it's not, it, I think it's gonna be hard pressed to replace uh, that type of purchasing occasion for customers.
0: So, questions. We always start out to be crab, just minutes, the crowd to see if anyone's got any questions.
1: How do we let manufacturers on our site differentiate themselves? So, so, our view is that we're really the we're really the central uh, focal point in the customer relationship, and so we really view ourselves as the curator of the content. Now, that being said. We use a lot of our analytics, customer-driven, in terms of what really resonates with customers. But we'll also work with manufacturers to share that data around their product lines. And we'll do joint e-marketing initiatives, joint merchandising initiatives, and we'll do those things together. But always very thoughtful about how we curate the space over time as opposed to just sort of blindly pushing something from one manufacturer versus another and the reason for that and we've been in the business for 90 years the business has changed dramatically over the course of the 90 years the constant in that has been a really strong customer relationship and an exceptionally high level of service to the customer and so those things are really sacrosanct in the culture so we do we do the partnering work uh, on the manufacturing side um, but it, it really is still uh, really is still oriented around what makes the most sense for the customer
0: who else a couple more?
1: Uh, We have a great place for those ideas to go. I think historically the ideas have gone there okay. Where we've really struggled is to commercialize them uh, coming out the other end. And so I think the big change that we've had is in the franchises where we've said, We are going to lead with transformational innovation in things like inventory management, digital safety services. The P&L owners for those businesses are now responsible for partnering with the innovation team, whereas historically, they could have strong-armed the central innovation team, and that would have been okay as long as they hit their numbers. That is now not okay. And so I think that's been the big change. Uh, We've also got an incredibly strong central team now that is generating some really high value-added work. So you're also getting more pull from the businesses for that work. Great question, thank you. One more? Back here. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about innovation internally versus externally, and sort of how you, how you think about and then look for partners to help drive that innovation as well? We have had um, great success with external partnering on the digital side, and far less so everywhere else. And, and what is not clear to me yet, so when I talked about that, Um, that picture uh, addition in in our click-to-chat technology, that's done through a SaaS partner. So many of the innovations we've done on digital and the click-to-chat platform on its own was done very quickly uh, on a SaaS basis with an external partner. We've done a lot of really neat work on the digital side. One of the things that we've done is now brought the digital pipeline, the innovation pipeline together. A lot of the same people, a lot of the same thinking. One of my beliefs is that that's going to accelerate some of the partnering work we we, we can do externally. And we've just started to see that bleed into areas like inventory management. So we're very early days there. I would say historically, um, that's been more, more of a challenge of people being um, worried about things that are invented somewhere else. And then really worried as we, because we are a larger player, largest player in the space, is then what happens to the IP ownership if we commercialize it and it's a home run? How do you get over some of those issues? That just seems to be less of a problem in the digital space. But I think we'll have more progress in some other areas going forward. Thank you. Uh, so I
0: think we have something for you. you want to bring up?
1: is this the 3d printed very nice very nice look at that excellent thank you very much
0: congratulations thank you for being part of the innovation series
1: thank you always a pleasure